Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. With a charming, colorful presentation, multiple strands of commentary, and groundbreaking interactive features, the Lifestyle Books Torah Slager Edition transforms the text into an experience. Join us as we speak with Rabbi Chaim Miller about how his edition of Torah endeavors to uncover the spiritual potential and human relevance of its every line. You're listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Rabbi Chaim Miller was educated at the Haberdashers Ask School in London, England, and studied medical science at Leeds University. He published the best-selling Kol Menachem Kumash, Gutnik edition, which made over a thousand complex discourses of the late Lubavitcher Rebbe easily accessible to the layman. His lifestyle books Torah, Five Books of Moses, Slager edition, was distributed to thousands of servicemen and women in the U.S. Army. In 2013, he was chosen by the Jewish press as one of 60 movers and shakers in the Jewish world. He lives in Brooklyn, New York, with his wife, Chani, and seven children. Rabbi Chaim, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Before we consider your Slager edition, would you tell us about the importance of Torah? Sure. I mean, I'm going to talk, I'll tell you from my own perspective, because I grew up, not a big synagogue attender, but I did attend. And um, you might not believe this, but the uh, Torah, Pentateuch, which was kind of read in public in the synagogue every week, it was never framed as God's word. And it was never framed as really anything that useful to a contemporary person. And I just thought, I mean, I wasn't like the biggest attender, but I just thought it's some sort of um, ritual that people use to do their bar mitzvah or something, because that's what... (laughs) That's kind of what was happening. And um, we had, uh, the edition that we had in the synagogues was the Hertz Chumash. Are you familiar with it? Yes. So that was written in the 1930s. And it was kind of serving the needs of that kind of era. And it wasn't speaking to like a young uh, boy or young man in the 1980s. Uh, more, you know, it just it, it just didn't click. I, actually, I didn't understand it, even though I had kind of good schooling, good British schooling, and uh, it was like the only book I'd ever read in English that I couldn't understand, <laughs> because it was more antiquated and the commentaries were trying to be in a very highbrow intellectual. Uh, so it kind of passed me by as something not that important. Um, and then when I kind of got into my twenties, I was looking for meaning. I never thought of looking there because. I, I kind of checked that out, and there was nothing there. And then I gradually discovered, uh, like through Maimonides and kind of these great uh, Jewish intellectual uh, figures, he was a medieval figure, and uh, it, it kind of dawned on me, well, maybe there's actually some intelligent content here that's kind of useful. <laughs> and uh, so I started looking into it further, and I found it uh, really fascinating um, how much depth there was, how much commentary there was, and how much emphasis there was in kind of having insight that was useful in daily life. 
and I said it was that was totally alien to me. And I gradually um, drifted towards this as a full time pursuit, uh, studying uh, Torah and uh, rabbinic activity. I was originally going to be a doctor, <laughs> but um, kind of had a change of direction. And I, uh, I'm giving this whole introduction because I'm always writing to myself, that kid in the synagogue, or that young person who just, this is, this is the some, what is the Bible? It's just something that doesn't seem relevant to, to, to modern life. So I'm always writing to that person of like, no, that it, it is actually interesting. It can be useful to you. It can be spoken in your language. So all, all the kind of Jewish Bibles, they're all very dull in terms of presentation. They're kind of, they're all black and white and they're all kind of um, more intellectual and not personal, really. And I noticed that Christian Bibles are not like that. You know, I was they're, they're often very colorful and talking about you know, life application. And um, it dawned on me that that was really the true intent of the Torah. Torah uh, literally means teaching, but it also means a kind of direction in life. And so I wanted to write a... Um, and it, it's not my own ideas. I just collected insights from classical thinkers and some modern thinkers. Uh, but they're all like, how is this going to help my life? Or how is this going to just emotionally lift me up? It's not um, scholarship. I mean, it's a kind of scholarship, but it's not, <laughs> it's not um, like what you're doing. <laughs> Real Sorry. biblical scholarship. <laughs> so tell us now about this Slager edition and some of its features. So there's two parts really, is the translation and a commentary. So the translation I did from, from, from scratch. I mean, obviously I was referring to existing translations, but you know, there was also like, I, I mean, the, the Hertzkomish was basically the King James, which I couldn't really understand. It was, it was too antiquated. Well, now I actually appreciate it a bit more. <laughs> um, but I wanted to write something that is um, like comprehensible and accessible without, um, you know, it's a fine line because you want to capture the majesty of scripture and the sanctity of it. Uh, I, coming from this background, I thought, well, if, no, if you don't understand it, there's nothing there. So we've got to make sure that it, it could kind of ring some. So I started translating it. And um, as you know, in the Bible, there's a lot of difficult words and statements which all the com commentaries are just arguing about what this really means and um so uh i noticed that the existing at least the jewish versions they just kind of shop you know there's a it's kind of shopping around looking at you know let's just find the easiest interpretation of each verse so um i came into contact with uh the commentary of rashi rabbi shlomi yitzhaki who was like a medieval early medieval figure and uh, he's the most popular commentary in hebrew because basically he gives a kind it's a mixture of just actually translating the words and also a little bit of rabbinic theology uh thrown in so it's kind of a, a good primer to understand how like in the jewish tradition the text has been understood at least since the rabbinic period which is like you know the dawn of the millennium but i mean like 2,000 years ago, really. Um, so I decided just to kind of, let's just go with one voice rather than this kind of um, salad of different voices. I'm just going to go with his voice. And where necessary, I'll just 
instead of just um, kind of twisting the text to fit into a translation, this translation of it, it's impossible really to translate the Hebrew text. Uh, Hebrew is a preg this is why I put it. Hebrew is a pregnant language, whereas English is a precise language. So in, in Hebrew, you'll have one word pregnant with meaning it has 10, 20 different meanings or contexts. And but in English, you have 20 different words that mean the same thing. Like I'm cold, I'm freezing, I'm frigid. It, it, it's you know. So so you they don't really. It's impossible to really ca capture that. Um, so I went with the uh, with the Rashi version and um, tried to make that accessible. So then the commentaries are drawn from a, a large variety of sources. Um, the, there's in the medieval period there's a very rich period of commentary with uh, Nachmanides and others. Um, and then later we have this from the 18th century onwards we have the Hasidic movement, which. Um, try to take, you know, um, Jewish practice has often been uh, overly emphasizing the strictures of the law and not, uh, you know, the kind of the joy of faith. So the Hasidic movement was trying to redress that. And they, they actually generated a huge amount of um, very uplifting commentary. Um, and also it had a psychological uh, component. This is, you know, the, this is 100 years before Freud or any Western psychology. They were delving into the psyche and reading the Pentateuch with that kind of lens, which is fascinating and, and it makes it very relevant. So I included uh, quite a large amount of that. Again, this is just short little, I, I, this is not an in-depth commentary. It's just you read a couple of paragraphs, you kind of, you kind of that's the aim, you get it. Uh, and then I also included some of the Kabbalistic tradition, which is the Jewish mystical tradition, which again is something I did not know existed until um, adulthood. And that's fascinating because it's it's kind of the bridge between the psychological and the actual text itself. Because, um, I mean, the word mystic, mystical can be a bit scary to people. You, you could call it archetypal perhaps is, is, is a better way of putting it, that it's, it's dealing with kind of the raw um, uh, human condition, the fundamental building blocks of uh, what makes us think. So that's also uh, um, those authors who, this is kind of going back to, um, you know, the 13th century, they're very, um, it's another lens which is refreshing. So I've adapted some of those. Oh, and I put uh, like questions for thought, um, which you'll be surprised does not appear in any Jewish Bible. And uh, to the extent that I had rabbis asking me, like, we can't, where's the answers? I, I can't find the, an <laughs> the answers to these discussion questions. Would you offer our listeners a few examples of Torah passages and insights from Jewish thinkers they'd find in the Slager edition? Uh, yeah, so I'll give you like a, a Hasidic one. So there's a figure called Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Badichev, who was um, active in the 18th century. And he um, authored a commentary, which they've just, it's just been published in English, called the Kedushat Levi. Um, and um, so I'll share with you a bit of him. So, so there's a verse where um, Moses comes back to God after, you know, he's gone to Pharaoh and Pharaoh doesn't listen. And he just makes the burdens of the Israelite slaves harder. And then Moses is like, 
devastated that this has not gone the right way. And he goes back to God and he says, Lama hara Why have you acted kind of badly to this people? But the, 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 I mean, the, the root of the word is ra, which means evil. So you could even translate it like, why have you been evil? Obviously, it's a little bit shocking to say that because to call God evil is kind of ridiculous. But that was his, at least emotionally, he, he felt that this, this was not right. Uh, and then he says, Lama why did you send me? It's kind of really f- fairly straightforward what it means. But the, um, in the Hasidic um, thought, Hasidic paradigm, Moses is painted um, as an absolute saint, uh, which, you know, if you actually read the story, you know, he's often making mistakes and he seems quite human. But... Um, he, in, at least in this land, he's kind of viewed as uh, as, as being very saintly. And um, so Rabbi Levi Yitzhak reads it like this. He says, Lama Why have you put evil in humans? With, with the, infle- the, the evil being inflected on the people, Amazer, not on God. <laughs> Why have you put evil in humans? Because I don't get it. I, I don't have any evil in me. I don't, I'm not tempted with lust or any, any of these traits. And they are, so... I don't get it. Why would you do such a thing? <laughs> and then he says, well, if that's the case, Lama why do you send me? Like, if you want to put evil in them for whatever reason you want and give people like an evil, what the Talmud calls an evil inclination, that's your business. But why are you sending me to redeem them if I find that unrelatable? So uh, obviously it's not the, the literal meaning of the words, but it's kind of... I find these things kind of refreshing because they're just um, like a different paradigm, a different way of looking things. And there's a kind of playfulness with the text that um, it works better in Hebrew because in Hebrew, there's, there's often ambiguity of like which verb is applying to which noun. So um, it's a bit more meaningful in Hebrew, but um, I like it. I thought it was interesting, that kind of approach. That is fascinating. How about one more example for us? Uh, so let me share something from the, the Kabbalistic masters. So they, the Kabbalistic writers, um, introduce the idea of reincarnation into a Jewish thought, which is not in the um, Talmud or the kind of standard rabbinic canon. And um, th- so once they have that, they start to reread the stories of the Torah of the Bible as kind of the same people occurring again and again. So you have Cain and Abel. Okay, so that you know, read the story, it's over, then some other people come along. But according to the Kabbalists, it's the same souls <laughs> repeating themselves. So so Cain is the well, Abel is the good guy, basically, right? He's calm, stable, good, wants to worship God. Cain is is more um uh disturbed. But, um, in a sense, he's more powerful. Well, physically, he was more powerful. There's a certain power there that um, in, in Jewish mystical thought, there's a lot of emphasis on elevating the, the, um, like the, 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 what would normally be considered, well, like a sinful impulse. <laughs> Let's redirect it to a holy one rather than just kind of Kind of just snub it out. So, um, so Cain's kind of energy gone wrong is seen as something 
that could be of value if it could be channeled in the right way. So then he reappears as the generation that built the Tower of Babel. And oh, no, before that, he reappears as the generation of Noah, who, you know, they will become corrupt. And then he appears as the generation of um, Tower of Babel. Again, <laughs> not, not being aligned to a good path. And then there's this kind of fascinating kind of law, metaphysical law. You can only fail your reincarnation three times. Then it's got to work. And so curiously, you might be shocked by this one. The Cain's soul comes back in the Israelites in Egypt, which is not what you would expect to be from like a Jewish commentary. Seeing as Cain is the bad guy. And then Moses comes back. He's able. Moses coming back is able. So he's like the good, actually fits in with our other insight. Was saying. He's like the good guy. He's con- trying to connect everyone with God. And they, you know, the, the, as, as, um, as you know, it uh, wasn't an easy relationship. A um, lot of rebellion, a lot of struggle. Um, but, you know, he did really believe in them that they could um, kind of go on the straight and narrow. So, um, so I find this interesting in a few ways. First of all, because... The idea that the same things are happening again and again throughout history is a valuable lesson, and it helps us to you know, see our role. There, there are cycles. The history is not just linear. It's also cyclical, and I think that's a very um, helpful insight in seeing connection with, with different generations that seem out of touch. And, um, and this idea that, um, you know, what we could superficially look at as a kind of demonic um, part of ourselves, a demonic impulse, um, can be, you know, it, it's, it's energy, it's passion, and it can be aligned to um, uh, a good purpose. I think it also helps us be more compassionate about people who we feel are not, you know, behaving well. And, and you know, we've all got that kind of animal instinct inside us. And... Um, it, we're not here to neutralize it. We're here to send it in the right direction. Tell us what you're up to these days. Any further publications? Yes, I am. Uh, I fairly recently published um, commentary on the Tanya, uh, which is a um, 18th. That's like the initial Bible of the well, Bible's not like right word. Kind of a, a manual of worship um, from the early Hasidic movement. And uh, a lot of fascinating insights into human psychology. And um, Carl Jung actually said on his 80th birthday interview that um, you, you could check this up. He, it, it, it sounds like an exaggeration, but he actually said it. He said that all his thought was anticipated by a rabbi. <laughs> uh, and he names him as the uh, Rabbi Dov Rich was an early Hasidic master and that so the Tanya is actually his thought I don't know whether Jung read that he probably just read um, some other uh, versions but um, so that uh, and it was also my own journey I found that book very moving so I translated it called it the practical Tanya and now I'm I'm delving also you know into more this mystical direction and finding what the Kabbalists had to say about the Torah and uh, God willing we'll publish something on that soon it's been a delight, Rabbi Chaim, to have you on the show with us. All the best. My pleasure. I wish you success in all your important work and all your publications. 
Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Goodbye.